What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Food, Sex, Politics. It's your girl, Nicole Rodriguez, registered dietitian, as here always with Dave Sharadsky, the food porn unicorn. But Dave, I don't now, know. Nicole, you didn't mention this is the new and improved food, sex, politics. Yes, <laughs> new, new and improved on multiple platforms. So many I cannot name. And doing improved yet again. We have another doctor on the show today. That's just how we roll. It's just how we roll. PhD or don't bother me. Today we're welcoming Dr. Jose Antonio of the ISSN. He is a big fucking deal in the sports nutrition world. He is pumping. He's in a tank today. I wish he was wearing a sailor hat. Maybe another time. <laughs> Dr. Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for coming. No, hey, thank you. Any any podcast that has food and sex in the title, I mean, what's left? Food, sex, sleep? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, no, it's great to be on. And yes, I'm in Florida. It's uh, kind of a rainy day, so... Unfortunately, I didn't get to the beach today. Wash, uh, what for you, we're going to do today is food, sex, steroids. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that works too, food, sex, and steroids. So, um, so yeah, uh, just a little bit about myself or your audience. Um, currently, I'm an associate professor at Nova Southeastern University. Uh, the last five years, maybe a little bit more, of uh, my research is focused mainly on sports nutrition, particularly high-protein diets. And the conversation we had earlier, Nicole, you know, a lot of people don't know it, but uh, after I finished my PhD, uh, for a few years, I actually did a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Texas uh, Medical Center in Dallas. And my focus was actually on anabolic steroids. So it's, you know, it, for people who want to talk about androgens or anabolic steroids, uh, that was actually an avenue of research that I was highly interested in way back when. But for reasons related not to science but more to politics, I decided, you know, screw this. It's it's not even worth doing research because no one gives a shit about data. Um, and you could you even use that to apply to anything, not just anabolic steroids, but heck, just the diet world. I mean, nobody gives a shit about data. People will decide what the hell they want to believe based on you know what some you know what some Facebook mom said. So you know what the hell. That's why I stay off Facebook. I don't want to be called that Facebook mom. What was that, Dave? It's almost like you wasted your time getting a PhD. <laughs> you know, well, well, no, I've had many moments in my uh, science career where I've literally asked myself, why am I doing this study? Uh, just, and I know we're digressing, but just to give you an example, um, six or seven years ago, I had a random conversation with a student I noticed the student was a, um, um, he was a bodybuilder. He loved eating. He was always eating, always eating. And just for shits and giggles, I asked him how much he ate. And, you know, nobody is better than bodybuilders at recording what they eat. They could literally, they have a mental Rolodex of what they, I had this for breakfast, then I had a snack, then I had lunch, then I had a snack, then I had dinner, then I had a snack. And once he went through his mental Rolodex, it was like, wow, you're eating like, well, 300 or more grams a day. And, uh, and then I, you know, what, what is the grams per kilo? I'm like, well, it's pretty high. You're like over three grams per kilo. And it got me thinking, <laughs> why don't I just do a simple study where I get a bunch of people who lift weights and have them eat a ton of protein? As odd as it sounds, no one has ever done that study at, to that point. Um, so we ended up doing the study and, uh, you know, mainly because people said it was, it was harmful, you know, eating a lot of protein. And of course, we found nothing, but I knew we'd find nothing because there's no reason to find anything. Yet, yet, you can ask, if you were to, and this is where, and I know this conversation, by the way, will just go all over the place. This is where science gets really kind of tricky because you'll, you'll notice the word science has probably been mentioned more in the last four months than, than four years before that. Science, 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 science. Well, if you, if you go strictly by the science, at least the way I interpret it, there's no reason that consuming a lot of protein would be harmful to you. However, if you were to randomly get a thousand, let's, 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 let's combine scientists, physicians, and dietitians, because let's face it, most people have never met a scientist, so they're going to go either to their doctor or their dietitian, because there's a lot more, there's a lot more physicians and there's a lot more dietitians. 
if you were to, if you were to do a survey of a thousand of them, I guarantee you 900 and not, well over 900 would say, yeah, eating a lot of protein is bad for your kidneys. And that's how the lay public views science. They're going to say, well, the vast majority of people in science say this. Well, science is not a popularity contest. And that's where it gets tricky because, like, for instance, I know nothing about infectious disease. I don't know anything. I mean, I took, I, I took cell biology, and I was, that's about my exposure. Which and I think I had. That's <laughs> right. You know, so, so even people in the sciences don't understand other fields of science. They pretend to, but at the end of the day, for me to understand infectious disease or immunology would be like asking the immunologist to understand exercise science. It just doesn't work that way. So most people who are outside of that specific science realm, in a way, we're kind of guessing. We're like, well, I kind of like what he says, kind of like what she says, but I really don't understand it. So we're sort of left picking those things that seem to agree mainly with what we want to believe. And that's where it gets kind of tricky. So, And I think that kind of ties back to part of the reason we wanted to have you on today. We mentioned that you are in Florida and recently your governor DeSantis, right? That, mm -hmm. that's, that's your guy. He rolled back some prohibitions on who is able to dispense dietary advice. Oh, wait, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Is, is DeSantis not a PhD? <laughs> He hasn't yeah. been invited. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's he's not up there. So you hear a lot of dietitians very rah rah about licensure, um, feeling that it's protective to what they do professionally, etc. Now you're really on, and I think their thinking is, well, I don't want your CrossFit trainer or the Facebook mom or whoever dispensing dietary advice when they have quote unquote no background. But then we have people like yourself who are in that very, very small population of actual researchers with many, many years in the field of nutrition specifically. And so I guess that would, those past rules would also technically mean that you were not supposed to be doling out nutrition advice to the public. So if you could delve in a little bit to that, what's going on in Florida in nutrition. Yeah, that's... Um What's interesting about this is I tend to take a much, a much sort of broader view of, of what Governor DeSantis signed. He basically wanted to deregulate a lot of professions, and, and one of them happened to include nutrition. But <laughs> when you start looking at all the, all the occupations that require licensure, for instance, um, hair braiding, um, uh, really? People who keep the, uh, what they call uh, timekeepers for boxing had to be licensed. Um, even hair salons have to be licensed. So the question is, and this is where I, I, I prefer rather than looking at specific uh, occupations, you, I think you need to look at the principle of what deregulation does. So when you start deregulating, how does it impact, let's say, plumbing? If you're a plumber in Georgia, and to work in Florida, you got to get a license. If I drive from Georgia to Florida, do I suddenly not know how to plumb? No. So who does licensure actually help? Well, one, it helps the state because they make money. Two, it, it eliminates competition for plumbers. If you're a plumber in Florida, you're like, screw you. You got to get Florida license because plumbing is so, is so different in Florida than in Georgia. Um, it eliminates competition. Do they, so do they have plumbing in Georgia? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. Anybody um, who's listening from Georgia, let me know. <laughs> so, so the, the idea that if you, if you start eliminating the need for licensure, what it does is it opens up the market to competition. So now if you're, it, it, this could apply to law. If you're a lawyer in Georgia, and I'm sure laws, it, there's going to be state differences in law. Maybe that's not the best example. But if you're a lawyer in Georgia, it's not like law suddenly changes dramatically when you get to Florida. If you're an electrician in Georgia, does that mean electricians in Florida, it suddenly changes? Or if you go north, you hit South Carolina or North Carolina? Well, the, the simple answer to that is no. Of course, it doesn't change. If you're a dietitian in Georgia, does it change when you drive across the border to Florida? So, so what's the point of licensure? One, it, it creates a monopoly. That's one. Two, by creating a monopoly, it eliminates possible competition. And I'll get to that. And Because people always bring up the CrossFit example, but there's there's a 
There's sort of a converse to that. It's not just CrossFit. And three, here's the question. Who is screaming for licensure? Are consumers screaming for it? Oh, hell no. There's not a single consumer saying, hey, we need dietitians licensed. We need them because if they're not licensed, I'm going to get really shitty information. Uh, no, consumers are not asking for it. I mean, consumers might ask for licensure in medicine. Okay, because you could die. But they're not asking for it in nutrition. They're not even asking for it in exercise. And I, I'm a firm believer that you do not need, you should, <laughs> you should not get a license to tell people to exercise. And what's, un, what's interesting is when I have these conversations with people, I'm like, so if you believe in licensure for nutrition, do you also believe in licensure for exercise? And they say, yes. I'm like, what are you, stupid? So if I want to tell someone to walk three times a week with their poodle, I need a fucking license? Can I say fuck on this? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's more than welcome. Yes. Okay. okay. All right. So, so you end up, it's like, what you we do is we edit you saying fuck in. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so the idea that you need that licensure is there, is there to, and this is the primary argument is there to protect the consumer. It's for safety. Okay. I'm like, okay, it's for safety. And let's, let's stick to nutrition. We've been in this game a long time. How, I tried to actually look this up on PubMed or Google Scholar. How many instances there are of someone giving, and this is where it gets tricky, bad nutrition advice, which is hard to define, bad nutrition advice causing harm. I can't find a single instance. Now, someone would say, well, if you tell someone to eat like this and they eat like this for 50 years, it might cause harm. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, most of the issues related to poor health is not related to diet per se. It's related to getting fat based on what you eat. If you maintain normal weight, you could be low carb. You could be high carb. You could be Mediterranean. You could be ketogenic. But if you maintain normal weight, that's the primary, that's the primary uh, uh, way of sort of, it's the proxy measurement of health, you know, if you're not obese. Um, so I couldn't find any, <laughs> any evidence that bad nutrition advice caused harm. And again, that's the primary argument I hear from dietitians. Well, well, and, and, and I like when CrossFit is brought up because no one beats up CrossFit as much as me. Um, they're like, well, now all these CrossFit people are going to give advice on nutrition. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what are they going to, I think CrossFit is what, in the paleo? I, I'm not even sure, to be honest. I think, never I think that's their thing at the moment. I'm not sure. I think they switch it up every now and again. Are they keto or are they paleo? Are they paleo-y? <laughs> I, it's, I mean, one, I it's, it's one or it's one or the other I, ch I i don't pay attention long enough to see what their right trend is <laughs> well what's interesting about that argument is like because that's it's funny I, on twitter i saw a lot of people actually a lot of my friends with phd say oh now crossfit people are going to give advice and i'm like who gives a shit why do you care let's say they give advice let's say it's stupid <laughs> there are mds on Twitter, as you know, Nicole, who are giving stupid, who are giving stupid uh, diet advice, doesn't necessarily cause harm. And, you know, <laughs> I, I look at this and I read these tweets and I even read some of the things they, some of the things they publish. I'm like, eh, that's not right, but it's not really harmful. I mean, we might, we might disagree on mechanistically on how a diet works, but at the end of the day, you and I know it's basically, if you don't overeat, you don't get fat, you'll be fine. Now, if, if you're eating for anything, unrelated to health. Let's say you're eating for athletic performance. I mean, that's a little different. That's sort of its own conversation. But when we're dealing with safety, I have a hard time finding evidence that, quote, bad diet advice causes harm. And that is the primary argument for licensure. Well, we want to we wanna save, uh, uh, make sure the safety of the consumer is paramount. Yet, nobody's ever demonstrated that safety is an issue for the consumer. I haven't seen it. Now, let's, let's take the flip side of exercise. Could, could, could bad exercise advice harm you? Simple answer to that is yes. It's called exertional rhabdomyolysis. And you see that quite a bit when you're dealing with trainers who don't know about progression. Um, so people, they do too much too soon. Um, they have excessive breakdown of skeletal muscle, and it might spill into their kidneys, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's rare, but it happens. And where do you see it? And where do you see it happen when it comes up? Who, what <laughs> practitioners? Two places, CrossFit, CrossFit. And, the and the military. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's, and that's you know, like, it's well, CrossFit, it's easy because there's, 
and I'll get to this because it's kind of, there's no progression in CrossFit. And then the military, people come in, they're fat and out of shape, and all of a sudden they're like, okay, we're going to run six miles. And it's like, ah, oh, shit. You know, I haven't trained, and now you're making me exercise. So, um, so it's, you know, it's, it's the lack of progression. Um, but if you look at, if you, if you were to make an argument of safety for licensure, there's a much better you argument for exercise. Can you say that you're working out your hardest if you don't get that? Say that again? Can you really say you're working out your hardest if your kidneys don't fail? <laughs> well, you know, some people have very high pain tolerance, Dave. Um, I am not I, one of them. <laughs> did you really push it if you didn't go into rhabdo? That's what I want to know. <laughs> when my kidneys start to hurt, I'm like, okay, I need to back off. <laughs> so, so, yeah. it's. Wait, um, <laughs> but I want to take it back to the point of safety because my understanding is that despite these regulations rolling back, despite the deregulation, this doesn't mean that someone can come off the street and work in a clinical setting as a dietitian, right? So it's not like you could just go and be a nutritionist and work in a Florida hospital and see dialysis patients or see a cancer patient or whatever the case may be. So I think that's where the argument for safety potentially comes in. Like you don't want just anyone, uh, I mean, I don't, I couldn't come in and do a tube feeding right now because that's not my area of practice. That's someone who is really well-trained in that I setting. And I mean, Dave does my tube feedings all the time. It's <laughs> something a little different, but you know. All your tube needs, I gotcha. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got it covered. Um, your tubes, feed your tubes, whatever. <laughs> but, to, but to be clear, that's not what's going on in Florida, correct? Yeah, yes, and, and I'm glad you made that clarification. Actually, anything related to a medical nutrition therapy is still dietitians and physicians. Right. So really, this applies more to the, the fitness, the weight loss aspect of, of nutrition. So it's, it's sort of what we associate when you go to a gym. You know, you go there to lose weight, feel better, and all that fun stuff. So yeah, it, dietitians are the ones who still deal with the medical nutrition. That's, yeah, no, one's, no one wants to go into that, into that niche. That, that's reserved for dietitians. So I want to make sure that's clear. So wait a minute, under the Florida law, though, could a CrossFitter give advice to that? No. 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 No, it's hospital can only give advice to anything related to fitness or, or weight loss related to fitness. So, or, or performance. They could actually give, you know, Isn't there kind of a slope there. Like what if I have cancer and I'm trying to get back into exercising, like then you have like a two for one, right? No, actually the law states that if you are under direct medical supervision, it still has to go through the dietitian, but Got the it. keyword there is direct. So obviously if you have cancer, then you're probably under direct medical supervision. But all you got to do is walk outside, and I don't know what it's like up where you live, but you walk outside and, what, at least half the people are fat? I mean, let's face it. Um, I'd say most of them don't go to a physician because they're fat, but they will go to a gym because they're fat. Philadelphia is a beautiful city. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to apply about Dave's great city. And if you, if you want to roll it back even further. Anything else. <laughs> if you want to roll it back even further to something you said that's become controversial, and I know this is going to go all over the place until we get to uh, the nuts and bolts of androgens, yes. But so now we have some dietitians claiming that uh, not being obese is not the best indicator of health, and like, oh, but your overall well being and how are you sleeping and. I don't know what other things you're reading. If you meditate, and and I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to diminish some of those points of being important for your overall health, right? And and but it all ties in, right? If you have crappy sleep, you have an increase for excess cortisol levels, right? And that could impact what you look like. That can impact how you feel. It can impact what you eat. Right. Just as like a loose overall tie-in. Obviously, we don't want people smoking. Um, but maybe give some tie-ins like how critical is it? Obviously I preach this. It's pretty critical to stay within a healthy weight range. And yet you have some practitioners who are kind of saying otherwise, I don't know if you've heard. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, I think the number one behavior for, we're talking about health, not performance. Like we're not talking yeah. athletic performance, just health. Yeah. I think the number one behavior you can engage in is exercise. And whenever I give 
talks to physicians, the first thing I say is if you're not training, you've lost half the battle. I mean, that alone will give you health benefits that nothing else will. So you got to exercise. The second thing I actually say is you got to be a normal, normal weight. You can, there's, there's so much evidence to show that once you get to a certain, let's say, body fat level, or if you want to use body mass index, let's face it, if your body mass index is over 30, my guess is you're probably fat. You're not going to find many bodybuilders who go to a clinic. These are people who are fat. Um, being fat is associated with pretty much every chronic disease known to man. Uh, high rates of cancer, heart disease, hell, high rates of death with COVID. I mean, if, if yeah. anything should have told people you need to be in shape, the pandemic should have told you that. Um, so being normal weight, I think, is critical. So exercise, being normal weight, not eating shit all the time. Your diet should have, you know, should have fruits and vegetables, have, have healthy sources of protein, avoid processed uh, meats like bologna and salami and all that crap. Um, and, you know, fire and, and fibrous vegetables and starchy carbs. I think if we eat normally and eat, eat healthy like that, one, it helps maintain normal weight. But two, you're just not eating junk. Uh, the other thing is sleep. The other thing is stress management and also maintaining sort of a tight-knit group of friends. Now, all the other stuff about, you know, um, that you had mentioned about, <clears throat> you know, limiting the amount of stress and one, all of that is good. But if you don't train and you're fat, I hate to say it, but that's... You're fucked. Yeah, you're fucked. It's like you, you got to start moving first. And to me, and you have a young child. When our kids were little, my kids are now in college. The one thing I am, we never told them what to eat. And we, I have two girls. They could eat all the junk they want. They want pizza, pizza. You want cookies, have cookies. But we, what we did say is you got to exercise. You have to exercise. And to this day, they are fanatic exercisers. And, they, and they've sort of learned what to eat just by watching. And they all have their diet, but they don't, they eat well for the most part, even though they ate like shit when they were kids. In fact, just a, a short sidebar. My one daughter, <laughs> when she was young, we're talking between ages maybe six and ten, we'd be at the dinner table, and I'm like, hey, uh, Brookie, and, and if she hears her name, she's going to freaking laugh. Hey, Brookie, hey, do you have any protein today? And I, classic response, uh, Dad, I had protein yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't work, doesn't work, that like, it doesn't work like that. <clears throat> okay. Her diet was by 99% carbs, of which 80% of that was sugar. She ends up being, well, one, she's the most athletically talented in our family. Two, she ends up being the tallest in our family. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> that's right. Well, now she says, you know what? If I'd eaten all that protein, I'd be like six feet tall. And I don't want to be that tall. She's like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, I'm like, okay, well, you know. <laughs> it, all worked, it all worked out. <laughs> right. That's right. It all worked out in the end. But, but those are all good points about nutrition and exercise working in tandem. And, yes. and I know I hear people say like, Oh, joyful movement, et cetera, et cetera. Again, not to minimize that, but my take is why don't you find the joy in moving your ass and lifting some heavy shit? Because eventually it all catches up, right? Endorphins and the look good, feel good and everything else. And if you could adapt to it, you're on, would you agree? You're just like on a better path for the long haul. Yeah. And I, you know, and I don't know why people do this. You know, the idea of joyful movement or exercise has to be fun. Exercise, you need to exercise hard and it doesn't have to be all the time, but you know, there's progression. But you got to train hard, whether it's lifting, whether it's running, whether it's swimming. You can't just, you know, lollygag out there and think, oh, my God, I'm going to get all these benefits. It just doesn't work that way. You know? Your kidney I mean, should be damn near in failure. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, um, I'm gonna, as long as I hit the CrossFit standard near injury or injury, I'm good. You, go. you, know, you, you know you did it. You know you really <laughs> You, you did it up. So right. before Dave uh, jumped on and you touched on this a little bit in the beginning, you were really into researching androgens. Bef hey, uh, Nicole, sorry to interrupt you. Before I get to that, you get to that point. Oh, I, yep. I, I had one other, one last thing to say about the, the issue of licensure and how CrossFit oh, will, will come in and, and, and like give stupid advice. Um, that, that's the primary criticism. All these idiots are going to come in, give stupid advice. But the, but the converse of that, maybe it opens up the, the, the market to people who give better advice. 
No one ever says that. What about, I don't, and I tried to find the numbers and I couldn't. I'm like, how many PhDs are there in nutrition? Or how many PhDs are there who do sports nutrition research? And first of all, there's not that many, but I couldn't actually find a number. And I said, why not let them give nutrition advice? I mean, do you really need a licensure? So it, it actually, it sort of, it, you can't just look at the, the sort of the, it's a continuum. You can't just look at the bad side saying, well, all these stupid people come in. What about all the smart people come in? And at the end of the day, it's a consumer choice. It, I always say, if you believe in consumer choice, you should be against licensure. If you don't give a shit about consumer choice, yeah, license everything. License the massage parlor, license, you know, hair braiding, license, you know, selling lemonade on the corner. And there are people who are for that. They're like, yeah, let's license it all because they think licensure somehow. You're telling me my hair braiding license was a waste of money. <laughs> That's right. You're, t- you're telling us that rub and tug business we we're going to open is now going to have to be licensed. Dave, we can't do anything right. None of our business plans are our dick pic business wouldn't work down there. We've got, we can go back to the, we're back to the, that's, that's, that's where our money's at. That's where we're tied no, 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 Nic- Nicole. You you open up and you open up a nutrition business down here, and that's just sort of what happens in the back back room. You know what? Post COVID times, we do we do what we have to do. But I and I th- I just want to make the point. I think of guys like you and uh, Lane Norton, and I think of Doctor Doctor Mike, who spoke at ISSN in Vegas yeah. last year. And sometimes, honestly, I'm like, wait a minute, but they're a lot more knowledgeable than anyone I know in my circle about sports nutrition. So, of course, I'm going to look to you. I'm going to look to Dr. Mike. I'm going to see what BioLane is posting. And I just think it's, it's kind of a ridiculous notion when you put it in those terms, like, oh, don't don't get nutrition advice from one of you guys. Like, of course people should be going to you guys for that advice and for that guidance. If you wanted to dispense it in Florida or anywhere else, really. Right. And, and also I think, I think it's a bad idea for people to fall in love with their, their initials, you know, whether it's RD, PhD or MD, they oftentimes they use their initials of saying, Hey, I know this shit because of my, you know, my credentials or initials. And it's like, Nobody really gives a shit. <laughs> at the end of the day, no one cares. No one cares. If you give good advice, at the end of the day, if they keep coming back to you for advice, then obviously it's working. So, um, yeah, don't fall in love with those initials. Um, Especially when it extends. All about health versus harm. It's, it's kind of a scale, right? Because like you said, you want your doctor to be you know, knowledgeable. Like, uh, I'm in finance, so I have to be licensed in any state I'm in. If I'm not, I can sell you all sorts of bad financial products, right? You can go broke. So it, there is a trade-off. Right. No, there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off with a lot of things. And that's why, that's why I think there's a continuum of things where licensure would be required. And I think, you know, someone brought up, well, airline pilots. <laughs> well, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> but remember, there's a huge barrier to entry to, being, to flying a plane. It's called you have to have a plane. Right. So <laughs> typically rich people don't just give their plane to you. So, so there are barriers to entry already. And in fact, and I know that we'll go into the anabolic steroid thing, but if you look at medical licensure, medical licensure is not specially specific. It's basically a board that determines you're now licensed when in fact it should be brain surgeons should license brain surgeons, right? Because they're, they're the ones who know best, but it's actually very general. And that's where it gets kind of tricky. It's like, okay, I'm licensed in the state of Florida, but you know, does that mean I'm a good cosmetic surgeon? I, I don't know. I mean, so there's a guy named Milton Friedman. I don't know if you've ever, you could YouTube him or read him. He actually makes a very strong case for eliminating licensure of medicine. He thinks wow. it'll op- open up the market to competition. Um, and it's actually quite compelling. If you listen to some of the Milton Friedman stuff, you know, he, he tends to be one of those. It's like the best way to improve, improve anything is to let people compete for it. That's why chiropractic, that's why osteopathic medicine came about. Why? Because of barriers to entry to allopathic medicine. Now, what happened? What did, what, did MD, what did allopathic medicine do? They incorporated DOs. So now basically osteopathic medicine is medicine. They said, well, instead of competing with you, we're just going to pull you in. Now you're sort of our, with us. Chiropractic medicine or chiropractic is not part of medicine. So in a sense, the only reason chiropractic exists is because of barriers to entry to, to allopathic medicine. Now, 
you know, the arguments go both ways. Do you, really, do you need to license a dermatologist versus licensing a cardiac surgeon? I mean, there's a continuum even in medicine. So, um, and also, licensure doesn't guarantee that you won't commit fraud. You could still commit fraud. You can, so, but there's at least oversight. It's like if somebody's building you a house, you would want them to be licensed in order to inspect that house because if your house isn't inspected, I could take a million shortcuts and your house falls apart in two years. Right, but the consumer will find that out and just not go back to you. Eventually, the consumer figures <laughs> yeah, that out. <laughs> no, you, you can't. You can't let no. You can't let the free market have just free right. Let's talk steroids. There's. A <laughs> <laughs> let's talk uh, free market and steroids. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's let's talk about that. So obviously. You are the guy who knows about high-protein diets, who knows about androgens, um, but we want to hear your thoughts, some of the politics behind that regulation, and you have some really nice insights as to, I don't know, maybe something that should be opened up a bit. Okay, let me, <clears throat> this will be like a three-minute story, but I need to give you some history as to how I got interested in in, in the proper term is actually androgens, but we could go with anabolic steroids, I guess. Uh, back in the, when I was in, uh, studying for a master's in the 1980s and then started my PhD late 80s, early 90s, um, I, I actually started reading quite a bit about the, the field of androgens or anabolic steroids. And myself and a couple other students, for the life of us, we could not find any data showing harm. We, we scoured that. We literally tried to read all the literature on anabolic steroids, and we could only find case studies in patients with cancer who are getting it to prevent loss of muscle mass, because obviously testosterone can help do that. But there was really nothing in healthy people, yet if you look at Goodman and Gilman's uh, The Pharmacological Basis of Therapeutics, which is the Bible of pharmacology, it says shit can kill you, right? It'll liver failure, this, that, all, uh, 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 harm to all your organs. And we're like, where? where, where, why do medical doctors always say this? And we went through the textbook, we're like, they don't even cite anything. And that's, you know, one of the first things I do is I look at references. People don't look at references, but I look at references. And we're like, we can't find anything. So we decided to write a paper back in the early 90s. It took a long time to get published, not for scientific reasons, but for political reasons. In fact, every journal that rejected it says, we agree with you, but we can't publish this because it's it's a, it'd be a political nightmare. Eventually, 1996, it was published by the Canadian Journal of Applied Physiology. And the position we took was that in healthy adult males, there are certain androgens or anabolic steroids you could take, and the side effects are minimal, if any, usually non-existent, and you'll be, you'll, your body composition will improve, athletic performance improves, done deal. Um, and what's interesting is all my science friends said, well, yeah, you're right, we know you're right, but I would have never published that because it's, it would have been a political nightmare. So what happened was, ESPN, back then, the magazine, they had ESPN. I don't think they have ESPN in the magazine anymore. They came to interview me. I was at the University of Nebraska. And I basically said, yeah, I mean, if you look at the literature on anabolic steroids, there's no evidence that it causes harm. I, I, it's just not there. <laughs> and somehow I got dubbed the steroid guy. I'm like, I'm just talking science. Well, who's the steroid guy stuff? You know, steroid guy, whatever. Um, <laughs> and it's then that you realize that no one gives a shit about data. And when people say science, 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 I, no, no one gives a shit about science either. They don't give a shit. About, I mean, some people do, but most people don't. That sort of coincided with, I don't know if you follow baseball, but Barry Bond, uh, uh, Mark McGuire, and, and Sammy Sosa hitting all these home runs. They were on anabolic steroids, et cetera, et cetera. They testified in front of Congress, blah, blah, blah. Congress says, hey, this shit is harmful. It'll kill you. George Bush gave a talk. The shit will kill you. Even though it was all a lie, it was a political lie, you know, kind of reminds me of things going on now, but... Um, now, wait, what's the answer, like, when everybody says, well, what about, like, the old guys in the NFL that took it, or what about all the pro wrestlers that keep dropping dead that have been on it? Well, those are anecdotes. Anecdotes are anecdotes. I mean, we could have anecdotes saying that, hey, when I trained at CrossFit, I became a, a world-class sprinter. I mean... If you look at them individually, almost all of those guys, actually almost all of them were on multiple drugs, not just anabolic steroids, but they were on growth hormone, they were on insulin. If anything, <laughs> testosterone or its derivatives is probably the safest performance-enhancing substance you could take, much safer than EPO, much safer than GH, much 
well, much better than GH, much better than IGF-1, it's the safest and the best. I mean, although long-distance cyclists probably prefer EPO over testosterone, although both are probably very good. Um, and actually, so you can look at... What's the origin? Why is it actually illegal then? Oh, it, well, it was the... Uh, I forget the exact year. This was... I think it was in the 90s. It might have been Bill... Man, I should know my American history. It was, I think it was Bill Clinton who signed the bill that made anabolic steroids a, a controlled substance. And it was purely a political thing because that coincided with Taylor Hooten um, and also baseball, Major League Baseball, the scandal. Um, so Congress, of course, felt like they needed to do something to protect children. Of course, we're always protecting children. Um, so they made it a controlled substance. Which is, not. We let guns in all sorts of schools. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so, yeah, that's, um, so the, it, it, became, it became an issue where science was sort of um, thrown to the side and, you know, politics took over. And what's interesting, between the 90s and now, there's an enormous amount of data, and oddly enough, a lot of clinical data where you give different anabolic steroids let's say testosterone and anthate, oxandrolone, et cetera, et cetera, to uh, pediatric burn victims, to HIV patients, to people with wasting diseases, and it helps them recover. This is what's so, what's so maddening about this. If you want to help a football player recover, don't give them shots of cortisone. Give them shots of testosterone, and the side effects are probably going to be a lot less. I mean, and it helps, it helps with recovery. But I mean, I, I guess my question is the demonization, like the demonization towards weed, right? That was due to a lot of racism against Mexicans. Um, crack is really frowned upon because the black references. What was really, if the steroids aren't really that big of a problem, what's the boogeyman, I guess? You know, I think part of it is people hate bodybuilders. <laughs> That's sort of what it is. Because... <laughs> In essence, it, it's bodybuilding sort of that brought it here, even though, I mean, they're the ones who embraced it first, um, even though I think the original uh, androgens were used by the German army in World War II. I'd have to look that up, but I think oh, it was interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, I think because, and in fact, this is why sports nutrition oftentimes is frowned upon, because really sports nutrition, particularly the protein part of it, really came from bodybuilding. I mean, bodybuilders will try anything. They're like, well, it seems to work, so I'm going to keep doing it, whether it's anabolic steroids, whether it's protein. And so I think there's always that bodybuilding, I, I hate to use the word stigma, but people who are not in the physique industry or work with these people, they have a really odd idea about people who lift weights just to look better. To them, it's like, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, who the hell does that? Well, a lot of people do it, you know, and it's not that weird. Um, so I think it's, it's that, um, because when you think about, you know, people, you know, when people say, well, what athletes, you know, are bodybuilders the ones that tend to use the most performance enhancing drugs? I'm like, uh, no, I would say it'd be cyclists performance, uh, long distance cyclists probably use more drugs than anybody. In fact, if you look at the stuff that was going on during the Tour de France, when Lance Armstrong was winning consecutive, consecutive championships, all those guys are using EPO, they're using testosterone. They're using, they're, you're probably using GH. I mean, they're using everything because they're beating the shit out of their bodies a lot harder than a bodybuilder would ever beat the shit out of his body. I mean, cycling that for that many hours, that many days is just, it's, it's, it just wrecks you. So if anything, that stuff helps you at least recover. Um, but yeah, the, the there's no doing that with, uh, you know, we hear terms like your God-given talent or your genetics or how hard you train. There, there has to be, there's a threshold of that, right? Where you get to a point of you need something else to get where you want to be. Yeah, and I think part of that is, let's take testosterone or the, the, the derivatives of testosterone. It's technically not a performance-enhancing drug. It's really a recovery drug. And the beauty of it is that because you recover like crazy, you're able to train really hard. And then you recover again. And wow, I can train really hard again. So in a sense, by being able to basically super recover, it allows you to train like, uh, you know what, the next day or the next or the second day or third day. Whereas, you know, normal people <laughs> without all this testosterone floating around their veins, um, recovery is just a lot, you know, it's just a lot slower. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think between now, between uh, the 90s and now, there's got to be hundreds of studies now on anabolic steroids. And, and when used correctly, 
it's quite safe. So when you say used correctly, what do you mean? Um, the data tends to be like, for instance, most of the data that's published is on testosterone and anthate. So it has to be, so there's plenty of safety data on that specific one. The doses actually tend to be quite moderate depending on who you ask. I mean, it's 600 milligrams a week moderate. Some say it's high. Some say eh. bodybuilders are like, ah, that's low. Uh, if you're getting a, a, a TRT, you're like, well, that's kind of high, 600 milligrams a week. Um, and usually the cycles are what, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen studies where they give it for years and really minimal side effects. So it's mainly a, I think it's a dosing issue, number one, and maybe the type number two. So most of the studies are on test and anthate, but there's some on nandrolones, there's some on oxandrolone. Um, would it be that much different if you use other testosterone esters? Like enanthate is fairly long lasting. Let's say you use a shorter acting one. Well, you'd have to get more injections, which would kind of suck. Um, but yeah, overall, if you, keep, if you keep the dose 600 milligrams a week or less, um, it could be supra physiologic dose, but the evidence of harm just isn't there. If, if anything, I, I don't know how old you are, Dave, but I'm quite old. Um, <laughs> as you get older, <laughs> And plasma testosterone starts to drop. A drop in plasma T is associated with all sorts of chronic diseases in males. And one of the ones which a lot of guys don't even pay attention to is depression. A lot of guys get depressed as they get older, mainly because plasma T starts to drop. And they just think it's like, I feel like crap, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? Why don't you get your testosterone measure? It could be just low. Bring it to, not even bring it high, just bring it to normal. Let's say the middle of average. You're going to feel a lot better. So you're saying with steroids, it would basically be akin to like micro dosing, right? Like you're not really going full on, full board on it, but it would be like, um, I don't know if you saw the LSD studies where they were micro dosing the LSD and people actually concentrated better. Yeah, I, I don't know if micro dosing is word, but it would be physiologic dosing. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like you're taking doses to bodybuild per se. You're just taking doses. I always say, what if your testosterone could be what it was when you were 18 to 21. Guys are like, yeah, sure, I'll take 18 to 21. Well, yeah, that's a good physiologic dose, you know? So, you know, as, yeah, far I'll as, take as far as, you know, the side effects, are we still talking the roid rage? Are we still talking, you know, the, the old wives tales or at least the old science, whatever it was, was it shrink your balls or whatever? Is that still okay? <laughs> well, the, the roid rage is a total hogwash. Um, if you look at the data where they've actually measured mood or aggression or, or anger. Um, again, low to moderate doses, there's no effect on mood or anger or anything like that. Now, the testic, I think you referred to your balls shrinking. Is that what you said? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, if it, normal negative feedback, if you're taking exogenous testosterone, obviously your testes are not producing it. So I would imagine there's got to be some atrophy. I don't know if it's measurable, but there might be some atrophy because you don't have to make it as much or you don't have to make it. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, God, I don't know if they've done any ball shrinkage studies, Dave. <laughs> I'm going to go measure mine and then we'll start doping. <laughs> Getting my needles out. <laughs> is, that, is that where you go to the rub and tug down the street? <laughs> <laughs> are they going to measure them at the rub and tug, Dave? Well, I, I think that's going to be part of it. People are going into a blind study. They just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to get this all figured out. I, I want to ask real quick, so... You mentioned GH. Why does it seem like there's such a push for that and so much interest in what, like maybe the past 10 years? It seems like, was, is that celebrity driven or is that people being scared to um, take androgens? Like where did that kind of come from? I think it's mainly an issue with anything related to androgens or anabolic steroids or testosterone people are scared of. Because um, the mainstream press beats it up, but really the mainstream press does not beat up growth hormone. In fact, they—I've seen articles, and that's fine. To me, it should be if you want to take it, that's fine. I don't care what you take. Um, GH is the fountain of youth. You know, if you take therapeutic levels of GH, if you bring it up to normal, maybe slightly above normal, it does help. It you know particularly helps you lose body fat. So just just by losing body fat, I mean, because we tend to store fat, I guess, more easily with age. Um, that's a good thing. And people say they feel better on growth hormone. So if you're a patient and you feel like shit and your physician's like, hey, I can give you shots of growth hormone, I'm all for that. I mean, it's, you know, should be a free country, right? But is it not a lot more costly? Oh, in terms, well, it, it's probably, 
well, technically, it would probably be, well, it depends on the method of administration, I would think. Uh, I think they're both costly. Obamacare. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if Obamacare would cover GH and testosterone. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but in terms of cost, I'm not sure. And in fact, if you're an older male, or maybe even older female, if you had a choice between GH and testosterone, go with testosterone all the time. You know, I know females who are very, very low dosing testosterone and they feel a million times better. Like an Anovar or something? Or is that different? No, actually through a physician, uh, testosterone. Like uh, it could be an injection, it could be a cream, it could be a pellet, but low dose. I mean... I am constantly offering injections and creams. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine why people are turning you down. High or low dosage. (laughs) Now now I have a scientific backer. You got to write me up a little thing. (laughs) I guarantee Dave is not low dosing his cream. (laughs) You got to license me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So, talking completely legal substances, because this is really your wheelhouse, if you had to narrow it down to uh, someone maybe not like quite a bodybuilder, but on the cusp there, someone really active. What are like the top five general supplements that you tend to come back around to in recommending if you could narrow that down? I think supplemental protein is one. I think uh, creatine, you know, about five, five grams a day is, would be two. Uh, if you don't eat fish, I mean, I have friends who do not touch fish, then I would say uh, fish oil, omega-3 uh, fats, um, and then it gets kind of tricky because once you leave those three, you sort of get more into the performance realm. And that's where I would include things like beta alanine, um, mm-hmm. which would help with performance. I mean, it, it helps you train. So in a sense, if you're a bodybuilder, that could be a supplement that helps you train. And maybe, you know, particularly since you guys, I would imagine live where you don't see as much sun as I do, probably vitamin D would help. Those all sound right in line. So, and you would say that women should be taking creatine. Oh, Active yeah. Active women, yeah. And in fact, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I also a lot of, vitamin D. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of women are hesitant to take creatine because they're afraid of weight gain. And we're talking about women who train. They're like, it's hard to find a woman who says, I need to gain weight. I can't wait <laughs> to gain weight, you know? Uh, they're rare. They're like finding a sumo wrestler at Weight Watchers. Um, so, <laughs> creatine, right? Even if you don't take it for your muscles, and I tell my students this, take it for your brain. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of data to suggest that creatine helps with memory. And I tell my students, you know what? If anything, you know, take low dose. Take three grams a day. Maybe it helps you remember stuff. So when you take the final exam, you'll do better. It's good for your brain. And there's, there's an emerging body of data that shows um, if there's a reason to take creatine, it would be to help cognition or cognitive function. Is there any mechanism by which creatine can cause acne. No. It's the only, see, <laughs> no, you know, I, I ask and I ask, I've asked Dr. Mike, I've talked to a couple of different people about it and everyone says the same thing. Maybe it was just like a lifestyle thing at the time. That's the only reason I stopped taking it. And I, I definitely acne. want, I, I had a terrible, terrible, terrible breakout. And it, you know, like at my age, Huh. Probably shouldn't be. But you're like 21 around like that. Yeah. Again, <laughs> I think. Um. But but I, that's very encouraging. I think I want to revisit because for your for your muscles, I had never felt better like in my life, and I was taking it at like like 36, 37, and I felt really Interesting. good. Interesting. You got acne. That's really strange. Yeah. That's really strange. Yeah. I um, think it's time to revisit it. Were there fillers? Was it a capsule or a powder? It was a powder. Were there other fillers that were in the powder besides I don't creatine? think so. No, I think it was yeah. a micronized. Wow, that's weird. Go ahead. That's drop really a, weird. Drop a, are you comfortable dropping a brand name? Maybe I'm not the only one well, looking I'll for th- a quality creatine because it is, we could go on about whey and casein and all that all day, but. I'm a, ca- your, I'm a, I'm a, I take capsules. I'm actually not a fan of putting powder and stuff. So I actually take um, Optimum. They produce um, I think three capsules is equal to like 3.5 grams or something. So I just take three capsules every morning or is it four? Oh, I don't know. I just have so many damn pills. I don't know what I take half the time. 
Or is it five? Hedge your bets, you know, whatever. (laughs) I'm like, ah, here's my pills. I'll just take them. I don't know half the shit I take anymore these days. Um, So, yeah, I take optimum capsules. Yeah. So rounding the rounding this all out, I think we've learned that everyone should be taking testosterone more or less, uh, yeah. a little creatine, and and Dave is doing deposits, high dosage. <laughs> I got what you need. This is fantastic, Doctor Antonio. Where can our listeners find you? Well, I can be found, um, um, you can reach me through the ISSN website, ISSN.net, and you'll see also the different conferences we're organizing. We're actually still going to have our conference face-to-face at Daytona Beach in September. Um, Yeah, so I'll I'll get to see real human beings instead of just, you know, faces on a screen, which will be kind of nice. And also... (laughs) <laughs> I can be reached on Facebook. You can just type in my name and or Instagram. I'm located Instagram under the uh, ISSN, the underscore ISSN. So if anyone ever has any questions about sports nutrition or androgens, I guess, um, or occupational licensure, I'll be happy to discuss whatever, you know, you know, what's, what I liked about this podcast is that we didn't talk about protein really. <laughs> <laughs> you know how many times I've been asked about goddamn protein? I'm sure, I'm sure once in a while you need a break, but I do want to direct folks to your Instagram because you put up such wonderful nuggets from all of your studies, and it really dispels the myth that you were talking about that protein, kidneys, don't do it, etc., etc. So I hope everyone checks that out and has a little bit more confidence fueling their needs and not feeling like they're going to damage their bodies Nicole, at all. How much protein do you eat a day? Grams per kilo? Um, I know, Because I'm lazy, I go by pounds, sorry. So I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm at a little over a gram per pound. That's very good. I need to put. I need to push it though, Doc. I need to push it a little That's harder. Really good. So, yeah. And Dave, Dave's probably what ten grams per pound? No, I'm one to one. Wow, hey, that's actually very good. I mean, um, it's unusual for people to actually. Oddly enough, most people who train don't get that high unless they're specifically conscious of consuming that much protein. So that's good. Yeah, proud of you guys. It's the one thing I very actively track, even when I'm not tracking full macros. I I make sure. I'm getting that in. So, cool. Yeah. Well, Doc, thank you. Appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you. It was fun. Good times and uh, stay safe down there and go on ahead dispensing that good nutritional information. I shall. Thank you, Nicole. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.